sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who once navigated a UFO with Prince and Chewbacca. Here is the captain. Rule number one, never look Prince straight into the eyes. It's good to be seen. Good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very excited to be featuring Merck Juice, New England-style IPA by the brilliant folks at Sixth Sense Brewing Company in beautiful Jackson, Ohio. Sixth Sense is a nano brewery and tap house featuring and brewing small batch craft beers and crafty cocktails. Merck Juice, how about four and three-quarter bottle caps out of five? So close, so very close and we of course get by with a little help from our friends that's right first up a big cheers to laura brewer big shout out to Kristen t in san antonio texas next up captain we have a shout and cheers to Corey in abington massachusetts big we like your jib to kelly in huron ohio and a little we like your jib to anastasia m in parts unknown and last but certainly not least we have a cheers to kelly in columbia tennessee everyone we just mentioned contributed to this week's beer fund and for that we thank you yes 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 B-W-E-R-R-U-N, Bear Run. If you're not nasty, but you want to get nasty, or maybe you're nasty and you want to get nastier, check out our bonus show called Off the Record. We do case updates, and it's just a brilliant show. It's probably the, the best podcast that's ever been made in the history of podcasts, and you can check that out at truecrimegarage.com. Click on the Off the Record link, and that is enough of the business all right everybody gather around grab a chair grab a beer let's talk some true crime This week's true crime story takes us to the village of Kirtland Hills, Ohio. Kirtland Hills is located in Lake County, Ohio, and has a population of under 700 people. It's about 20 or so miles northeast of the great city of Cleveland, surrounded by the much larger cities of Willoughby and Mentor, amongst others. Kirtland Hills is your ideal community for raising a family, a small town feel with big city amenities nearby. If you were to be driving through, you would notice mostly larger homes on large lots of land, especially in the Hunting Hills neighborhood. 
This month is an anniversary and not a happy one. 30 years ago, a smart, hardworking father was murdered in Kirtland Hills. And all of these years later, it's still not exactly clear why someone would want this well-liked man killed. Some say his murder was an act of jealousy. Others say it could have been to keep him silent. And then there are those who believe that maybe it was a little of both. Raymond Timbrook was a father of two. He was a very smart and successful man. Ray, as some of his friends called him, worked for the very prominent company CT Consultants. According to their website, CT Consultants is a leading firm offering engineering, architecture, planning, and construction services. Raymond Timbrook was with CT Consultants for 12 years. Timbrook was a partner, stockholder, and a six-figure salary a year vice president. Our story takes us back to March of 1992, Friday the 13th. On this night, Raymond was found shot to death in an underdeveloped subdivision known as Hunting Hills. This was a housing development that at the time was under construction. The site was described as a wooded area. Hunting Hills will be parsed out in 5 to 20 acre lots, promoted as country quiet. The neighborhood was being built by developers Jerry and Mike Osborne and Jim Brown. CT Consultants had an engineering contract with the developers. So, it would make some sense that Raymond would be in this area. But when his firm was asked for clarification as to what Raymond was doing there and who, if anyone, he was meeting, they could offer very little detail. Sources said he had a 4 p.m. appointment there. Everyone whose statements have made their way to public record all say the same thing. Ray was there to meet a business associate, a co-worker, and some have even named that individual. This, however, did very little to firm up the who, what, and why portions of Ray's presence at this location, where he was later found having been murdered while sitting in his car. According to the Lake County Coroner's Office, Raymond Timbrook was killed between 5 and 6 p.m. He was found slumped over the steering wheel, sitting in the driver's seat of his 1991 Buick. The killer likely reached into the vehicle and repositioned Ray or posed him, giving the appearance of someone sleeping with their head and or chest up against the wheel. Raymond was found shot twice with a large caliber gun at almost point-blank range. But there was a witness, a man claiming to have seen Ray Timbrook talking to another man, standing near the rear of the car. This witness was questioned and was able to provide a highly experienced police artist with the description of the person he saw. I have also been told that a description was provided by a person who saw a man driving away from the scene. This witness provided a profile description of the man driving. This composite sketch was widely released to the public via newspapers and persons posting flyers in the area and neighboring cities and towns asking for help, asking for information. The description provided and the man they were seeking was described as age 40 to 45 years old, Caucasian, with shoulder-length wavy hair, sand-colored, and curled at the collar. He had a thick build, looked barrel-chested. He had no facial hair. The man was driving an older vehicle in good condition, listed as beige in color and a two-door, possibly from the late 70s or early 80s. 30 years ago, Kirtland Hills Police were looking for a man and vehicle matching this description. Today, Raymond Timbrook's family, the Lake County News Herald, WKYC News and now True Crime Garage are still looking for this man. Still looking for anyone with information that could assist in this still unsolved but now cold case and still looking for the person or persons who killed Raymond Timbrook. This is True Crime Garage.
40 years ago this week captain we have the subject of this week's true crime story a family man businessman 44 year old raymond timbrook was killed and from one of the more recent news articles on the raymond timbrook case it sums up the current and sad state of this case and that brief description reads as follows kirtland hills ohio It's a cold case frozen in time for three decades. A mild-mannered engineer found dead inside his car, shot execution style twice in the head. At his funeral, a mysterious woman makes a startling revelation to survivors, but later hires a lawyer and refuses to talk with police. Now let's go back in time to March 1992, Friday the 13th. This was supposed to be a normal work day for Raymond Timbrook. He works for CT Consultants, which is a very prominent firm here in Northeast Ohio. They do business here, millions of dollars worth of business here, and they've expanded throughout the country. So this is a successful business and a successful man working for this successful business. He has been with this firm, CT Consultants, for 12 years. So you would expect this to be just another Friday for this man at the office. And this weekend was supposed to be his weekend with his two sons, Brian and Scott. But on this day, Captain, Raymond Timbrook sadly will not make it home. And the way that this story works is as follows. Late in that afternoon, Raymond Timbrook tells his secretary, that he is going to be meeting a business associate at a meeting location. This is Hunting Hills. This is a neighborhood. Basically, it's all streets at this point back in 1992. And CT Consultants is working with the developers to put in this neighborhood. Raymond Timbrook tells his secretary that he's meeting a business associate, a co-worker, And in all actuality, for whatever reason, Captain, I cannot explain this, but over the years, that man's name has disappeared from the newspapers. And now it just says business associate or coworker. But back in 1992, what we would learn is that Raymond Timbrook was meeting a coworker, and that coworker's name was George Smergen. He was supposed to be meeting George. Some reports say that he left the office at 3.30, or the meeting was to be at 3.30. Other reports say that this meeting was to take place at 4, or that Raymond Timbrook left the office around 4. Either situation makes sense, and we're really just talking about a difference of 30 to 60 minutes here, and we're also talking about a difference of 30 years later that we're telling this story. From my understanding here, Captain, Raymond Timbrook lived not terribly far from CT Consultants, and CT Consultants is only about a 10, 15 minute drive from where later his body would be found inside his vehicle, a 1991 Buick. Raymond Timbrook leaves his office. Again, Timbrook is in a bit of a transition period in his life. He's recently gone through a divorce. At one time he was living with his parents and now he's moved into his own dwelling and apartment as I understand it. And it looks to me just looking off the map, Captain, that this would be a very common thing or common thing for any of us because Ray could hit this stop on his way home. And so it makes sense we have a late Friday appointment. He could hit this stop on his way home. We don't know exactly what he was to be doing there, what he was going to be discussing. We are told he's meeting this George Smeragin person how long the meeting was supposed to go for. Again, we don't know, but the assumption is that Raymond Timbrook would have went home after this meeting. Well, and if you're an investigator, Timbrook doesn't go home. So your first suspect is who was Timbrook meeting and what were they discussing? Is there a possibility that there was a conflict at the meeting? That would be the first person that I would be questioning, interrogating, and and collecting fingerprints, DNA samples, anything of the sorts. What ends up happening, Captain, is that later that night, we have Kirtland Hills PD on the scene. We have an officer who is, there's some question here if he's responding to a call, which is, I believe, what, what actually happened here, that he's responding to a call. There's others that have said that he may have been passing by 
and Tim Brooks' vehicle would have been obvious, so it would have been something he would have checked on. Right. Raymond Timbrook is found dead in his own vehicle, having been shot twice. His vehicle is running at this time, and it's it's positioned as he was going to be leaving this Hunting Hills area. Again, Hunting Hills is this development that is very much under development. It's it's being developed. There's nothing really there other than streets at this point. Again, like you said, this is 30 years later. So what is it today? It's a gated community. And I think you originally said that some of these plots of lands were anywhere from five acres to 20 acres. Yes. This, these are wooded lots. These are for people that want to spend up on their home, spend up on their plot of land. And this is an affluent area. You know, we mentioned that there's less than 700 people that live here today. Well, that's because these people live on big plots of land and it takes up a lot of space. And as you will hear in some of the interviews that we conducted in this case, You'll hear more about this Hunting Hills in this Kirtland Hills area as we go. The initial details of this neighborhood or the neighborhood that's going to come to be pretty interesting kind of estates, like you said, 5 to, to 20 acres. That is not the normal neighborhood. From a July-August 1992 The Crime Reporter article, when Officer Gerald Rakofsky found Tim Brooks' body in Hunting Hills. The headlights of his vehicle were on. The engine was running. When he looked inside the car, he saw one bullet wound in Tim Brooks' head. Because he didn't see the other bullet, Officer Rakowski made the assumption that Tim Brooks had committed suicide, according to information he wrote in his incident report. The officer didn't touch Tim Brooks' car. The Lake County Forensic Laboratory and Lake County Coroner's Office handled the removal of both the vehicle and Tim Brooks' body. The still-running car was towed to the Forensic Laboratory for examination while Raymond Tim Brooks' body was taken Again, to the morgue. It's 1992. It's a 91 Buick, so a newer car for that time period. So you're telling me that the police officer, he didn't see the second bullet I'm assuming that the gun was left behind. There has never been a murder weapon found in Raymond Timbrook's case. And in fact, if that murder weapon was ever to be located, I think that would be a major, major break in this case. Now, based off of that report that we just read, you can kind of piece together why this officer may have made the assumption in his report. We want to be clear about that. Tim Brooks' case was ultimately ruled a homicide and ruled a homicide very quickly. Now, the officer responding, he thinks it's a suicide for multiple reasons. One, they don't have homicides in Kirtland Hills. They just don't. I mean, you can look up their crime statistics for Kirtland Hills, Ohio, and the the murder incidents reported, I'm showing zero when I look up this is um, this data reflects the 2020 calendar year and was released from the FBI in September of 2021. So for the entire year of 2020, all these years later, zero homicides. Rape reported in this area, zero. Robbery, one. Assault, nine. Violent crime, 10. Burglary, one. Theft, 24. Vehicle theft, one. Property crime, 26. So this is an extremely low crime rate area and the violent crimes are almost non-existent. But we also have to take into account that their population is under 700 people. Correct. But in regard to percentage, when you compare that with the national average violent crime, they have 62% less violent crime in this area than the national average. They have 77% less crime than the national average. So percentage-wise, it's a huge drop-off as well. And we have in this report where the officer says that he he finds Raymond Timbrook but does not touch the vehicle. He just makes an observation. He calls it in. He's calling in the experts to get the body and to get the vehicle. He's making the assumption of, oh, I find a man slumped over the steering wheel in his car. You know, he takes the license plate. He can confirm that this is Raymond Timbrook in his car. And he says, I didn't touch the vehicle. I write up my report. I'm making the assumption that we have a suicide. 
there again, he's making the assumption that once they remove the vehicle and, and Ray from the scene, that they will likely find a gun either in his lap or somewhere in the vehicle with Ray. And unfortunately for our homicide case, that's not the case because we know that this is a homicide. We could have had a situation where somebody could have shot Ray and then threw the gun into the car with him. If that would have been, then been ruled a suicide, I'm sorry. If that would have then been ruled a homicide, even with the gun in the vehicle, well, we would at least have the gun as some kind of evidence to work off of here in the situation. Now, to complicate matters a little further, no gun, but the other thing that's going to confirm that we have a homicide here is Raymond Timbrook was shot twice. He wasn't just shot once. So we have an officer who's probably experienced in this area, the area where he lives and works, and because there's basically little to no violent crime in this area, he's very inexperienced when it comes to violent crime and particularly in homicides. Well, it also makes sense for the responding officer. He doesn't have the tools. He doesn't have the training. He's not a detective. Even though I don't like the fact that he just assumed that it was a suicide, it's smart in the sense of that he's not going to tamper or contaminate the scene at all. Which would be unnecessary for him at that time. Again, let the experts do that stuff. You can right. always change your assumption. It's not his job to rule it a homicide or otherwise. So you can work it in that manner. And again, inexperience with violent crime, especially homicide, he may not have been overly excited about getting his hands dirty, so to speak. Now, found with the victim inside his vehicle were all of the items that they expected to find with Raymond Timbrook. So we have his watch, we have his wallet, we have his money, and we have some work items that he had with him. I believe that there were certain work items that were found in the trunk of his vehicle. And I believe these to be items that he's taking with him to the scene for the purpose of this air quotes meeting that he had that day. So this is not a robbery. This is, and would appear to me to be that this man was asked to be at this scene, possibly lured to this area and then shot and killed once he was there. Why? By whom? Well, that's what we're here to try to figure out. Well, no gun left at the scene, so no murder weapon found, but we still have bullets, so that gives us some information on, on what kind of weapon we're looking for. Yes, and this is based off of information that came out just a couple of months after the murder, and it says, based upon the angle of bullets or based upon the angle of the bullets from the 38 caliber or 357 caliber handgun. So we're going to stop right here, Captain. Police have never officially released exactly what caliber was used. They have made suggestions as to what possible caliber of gun was used in the commission of this homicide, but they've never outwardly stated exactly what kind of caliber. And they've often referred to the gun as a large or larger caliber gun. This article specifically states 38 caliber or 357 caliber handgun. I've also heard a nine millimeter gun and other reports. So this says handgun, which was used to kill Raymond Timbrook was shot at almost point blank range on the left side of his nose from a person who was standing at enough of an angle that the coroner found the bullet lodged in his neck. The other shot was fired at nearly point-blank range behind his left ear. This all happened sometime between 5 and 6 p.m., according to the Lake County Coroner's Office. Because Raymond Timbrook was found slumped over his steering wheel, the assumption is that the assailant was holding a gun to Timbrook's face while standing on the driver's side of the 1991 Buick Regal he was driving. So that I'm following you correctly, the murderer would be standing outside of his vehicle after the first shot, they believe, then he did he did like an execution kill shot afterwards. Correct. That's what it looks like to me, and that's what pretty much everybody else is saying. So if you take that information and you try to visualize it in your head here, 
what we have is Raymond Timbrook, who is looking at the shooter when the first shot is fired because it hits near his left nostril. And what they've been able to somewhat surmise from this, or, or at least kind of add to the equation here is that likely that shot or the second shot, one or both would have pushed him into the passenger seat where he would have slumped naturally over into the passenger seat. So at some point, the killer then reached into the vehicle and positions Ray upright once again and leans him forward onto the steering wheel. Now, we don't know if this was meant to pose him to maybe buy some time if passerbyers came through that they would assume that the guy was sleeping. It's even been reported that when the officer first approached the vehicle and found Raymond Timbrook there, that he made the assumption himself that the person inside was either sleeping or drunk. So the question then becomes, did this killer pose Timbrook or, or is it somewhat happenstance? Was there something on the passenger car seat that they had to get to? And so they had to move the body. Um, but like you said, it, it very, it would make a lot of sense to pose them in this way, but why wouldn't you turn off the lights? Because I feel like the lights in the car and the car running would draw attention to the crime scene. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's just something that doesn't make sense. If you went to the trouble and had the forethought to move this individual to position him or stage the crime scene as such to buy you some time, why not shut off the lights? Why not shut off the engine to the vehicle? Again, it's very difficult to say why the killer did certain things and why they did not do certain things. What we do know is that this is not a heavily populated area at the time. Again, there's, there's nobody out there. It's under development. So who knows? It may be as simple as he fired off two shots very quickly, moved the moved Ray Timbrook for whatever reason. Again, as you said, to retrieve something from inside the vehicle passenger side or to make it appear that he may be sleeping for passerbys to stall. Maybe somebody doesn't call police if they think he's just out there sleeping, wants to hustle and get out of there quickly because of the loud gunshots, does not want to be seen at the scene. But we do know that there's a witness. So you also have to factor in, is there a chance that he was aware that somebody is coming into the area and wanted to get out of there as quick as possible? And from us talking before, everything it seems like they've ever stated is that there's one gun, there's one shooter. But just because there's two bullets that are the same doesn't mean that they're essentially coming from the same gun. We just don't have any evidence that's released that would suggest otherwise because th that makes me question too if you're going to meet this guy out in the and the plan all along is for this almost execution type killing some people don't act alone in that situation well one thing that's always puzzled me about this case and and I thought the same thing that you're kind of hinting at a little bit here captain with two Shots, I wondered, potentially, do we have two shooters, two guns? Well, because they're... And it doesn't appear that anybody that's close to the case seems to think that. So right. uh, we don't have anything to base that off of other than the knowledge and information that they've put out over the years. Now, one thing that has always been highly speculated on in this case, too, and, and sometimes outwardly stated, that there is some belief that Raymond may have known the person that shot him because this person was able to get so up close and personal when pulling the trigger. And I can agree with that, but also at the same time, it's a little difficult because here we have a case that's 30 years old and it's not been solved and it's not been solved for a reason here. As we go through it, you will see there's a multitude of reasons why this one's not been solved. But in this case, I don't know that it necessarily has to mean that he knew the person or was comfortable with the person so that they could get up close and personal and shoot Raymond Timbrook. Now I say that because anyone could have just walked up and you look at where he, where the first bullet hit that to me is a natural reaction of somebody just sitting in the driver's seat, turning and looking toward whoever approaches their vehicle where that kind of gets flipped on its head 
and would go back to the likely suggestion that Raymond knew this person or at least was comfortable enough with them to be in close contact with them is the witness statement, right? Because we talked about two witnesses or one witness with two different stories in the trailer, but one of those witnesses or one of those versions of that story is that the witness saw Raymond Timbrook speaking with a man near the rear of his Buick Regal. This also makes sense based off of the information that we've been told over the years that there were some work-related materials in the trunk of Raymond's car. So you can kind of picture this once you factor in the witness statement of, I, I briefly saw two individuals talking near the back of this car, later can identify one of those individuals to be Raymond Timbrook after speaking with investigators, after speaking with Kirtland Hills Police Department, and then Raymond's now in his vehicle, and then he's shot. None of the statements that have ever been released suggest that this witness saw the actual shooting. And again, the other version of that story is that a witness saw a man driving out of the area, and that's why they were only able to provide a profile description of this man leaving the area. Was this man witnessed at the scene driving from the area, the killer of Raymond Timbrook? Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. 
$45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Ricks and effects. Cheers to you out in listener land and cheers to you, Colonel. Cheers to you, Captain. Cheers to everybody out there. Now, because there is so little information that has been released over the years in the Raymond Timbrook case, we've asked a couple of people close to the investigation to help us fill in some of the blanks here and help provide some more information in regard to this cold case homicide. And one of those individuals is his oldest son, Brian, who was a senior in high school the year that his father, Raymond Timbrook, was killed. And we asked him to tell us about that fateful night, that terrible night when police arrived at his home to let him know that his father had been killed. It was a Friday the 13th. I was a senior in high school. So it was a Friday night. We was out at a friend's house. Uh, got a little intoxicated. The parents drove my car home with me to get me home safe. I passed out in the bed with my varsity jacket on, and I was woken up to my mom saying that there were police downstairs that wanted to speak with me. She seemed a little distraught, and I said, it wasn't me. I got a ride home, and um, that's when um, my whole world shattered basically. And, uh, chief Smith, and I believe it was Rakowski, uh, that was accompanying him, uh, had to announce them. They found my father shot murdered in Kirtland Hills. And I just ran outside and cried. And it's just been, uh, a rough road ever since. Um, it's, it was, uh, I just remember that day going to my grandma's, my mom, my dad's mom, and my mom and my brother, and just consoling her. And um, like I said, my life was forever changed that day. And uh, it's been a long time coming that... Uh, answers and justice for Raymond Timbrook is uh is well overdue. Brian, what were you like? What was your father like? What was your family like before the murders? Well, we was uh my dad was a hard worker. Um he owned was part owner of CT Consultants. Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um I was in high school. I was active in football. 
Um, obviously, you know, a troublemaker, uh, the teenage years. Me and my brother were academically good with our schooling and had good grades, but um, it just, uh, there was no signs of any turmoil. Um, when it was announced that my parents were getting a divorce, I blamed the divorce on me because of, you know, I, you know, I did get in trouble and I wasn't the, the, you know, the best, but you know, it's still, it, it irked me because I had no idea signs of it, you know, normal divorce is you you see turmoil and and it, there were it was nothing was ever shown and um it just uh it came to a shock and i mean i i grew up working with my dad from a little kid i'd always go in on a saturday with him to the office and you know sit on the draft board and and try drawing stuff you know from when i was a kid all the way up to when he passed i worked summers throughout high school um on the survey crew for ct so even the year after his murder before i went off to college after i graduated i worked there too it just i my whole plans were to become follow my dad's footsteps and that road that bridge just collapsed right in front of me and like i said it was there was no signs of any turmoil in, in my parents relationship and i just when this came about was just a, an outright shock and you can hear obviously the emotion that is still left with this this now grown man brian who lost his father 30 years ago you can still hear the emotion and the hurt well, you're haunted by the fact that he was murdered, but on top of that, every day that it's not solved, there's no justice, so there's no closure. And Brian, his own words, he wanted to grow up to be like his father, and one of his heroes was taken away from him just like that, at the drop of a dime. And we need to fill in some blanks, though, here, Captain, because as we said earlier— Raymond Timbrook was a, in a bit of a transitional period in his life. He had been married to his wife for quite some time. He went to Michigan State University. He goes on to be an engineer, and then he works for CT Consultants for 12 years. And he's married during the course of most of this. And he has two sons, Brian, who at the time of the murder, you heard him say he's a senior in high school. He's doing normal teenage stuff, maybe a little rough around the edges, but, uh, anybody that that's been to the garage will tell you so so were the captain and the colonel rougher than most there you go and he has a younger brother scott who's very close in age to brian and so they're both kind of doing their high school thing brian's looking forward to college and working with his father at ct consultants but during the course of brian's senior year his parents split up and as you heard Brian say, this was kind of a shock to him and his brother. They didn't really see any arguing, you know, all of the telltale signs of a soon-to-be divorce. They don't see any of this. This was not a messy divorce, as I understand it to be. Shortly before Christmas, and this would have actually been in the month of November of 1991, is when the parents, his parents split up. And the way that he explained this to us was that he and his brother went and stayed with their grandparents or with a relative. It may have been an aunt for a weekend. And it seems like the parents very wisely and very quietly behind closed doors, the two of them figured everything out. They were going to figure out, should we stay together or should we separate? And we're not going to have to do this in front of the children. And so I commend them on that angle because too, too often times when parents are splitting up, a lot of the fighting or arguing or, or what have you happens right in front of the children. And that's not always the healthiest of environments. These two individuals decide we're not going to stick together. Dad, Raymond Timbrook moves out and he goes and lives with his parents 
and eventually gets his own apartment. So in in just the short time period between November of 1991 and March 13th of 1992 when Raymond Timbrook is killed, he separates from his wife. They get an annulment. He leaves the home. He leaves the house with his wife. She gets primary custody of the two boys who are almost grown themselves at this point. And they're going to be visiting their father on weekends on, I believe it was every other weekend. But in that short time period, his life changes dramatically. Their family life changes dramatically. And then Raymond Timbrook, their father, just 44 years of age is killed. Let's get into the timeline of, of a little bit after the murders on that Friday, March 13th. What we have here, Captain, is a very strange and unusual situation because at Raymond Timbrook's funeral, a woman announces herself as Raymond's fiance. And the reason why this is very unusual is this is not a woman that has a head. You know, nobody at this time knows that he has a fiance. Mm. They knew that he's recently divorced, recently separated from his wife. But nobody knew that he was in a relationship and in a relationship so much so that they are planning to get married. The family, we have the sons, his ex-wife, we have Ray's sister and Ray's mother. None of these people know anything about this relationship and their loved one has been killed. And now we have a what's been referred to over the years as a mysterious woman who claims to be Raymond's fiance. Well, she's not so mysterious. She's a coworker of, of Raymond Timbrooks. And she was somebody that was somewhat known to the family because, you know, you have company outings in times where Brian and other members of the family would tag along right. to work with Ray. So they have some interactions with his coworkers at CT consultants. Her name is Lynn Egensberger. And she's a little bit younger than Ray, and she, as said, works at CT Consultants. One thing that I really questioned here early on when I was looking into this case, Captain, was we have this woman who claims to be his fiance. all of Ray's family saying we had no idea that he was in a relationship. I wanted to see, well, is there anybody in Lynn's family or people at CT Consultants? Is there anyone else in the world that could back up this relationship and that he, that she in fact was his fiance. Unfortunately, Lynn Egensberger is somebody who's lawyers up very early on in this story shady and refuses to cooperate with the investigation, refuses to speak with the media, but the engagement seems legit to me so much so that I was shown a receipt for the engagement ring and it was purchased shortly after Raymond and his wife separated. So who knows? They could have been involved in this relationship, and it looks to me like they probably were involved in this relationship for weeks, months, who knows how long before right. Raymond and his wife decide to separate. So we know that this was a legit engagement. Now, where the trouble comes is... We have Lynn who announces herself to the family and to everybody at Ray's funeral and says, hey, I'm his fiance. Well, Brian says, I invited her to the, there was a, a small gathering afterward. Yeah, like a wake. There you go. And he says, I invited her to the wake because I had questions. Like, where's your head? I have questions. And I think it was also to be polite, right? His family's in mourning. Lynn's in mourning as well. She's in love with this man, and now he's dead. Well, yeah, and hold on for a second. This is a strange murder situation. Yes. Found in his car in a development that's not even developed yet. Lights on, car running. And then at his funeral, this is a strange funeral. This is something that you would see in the movies. A lady comes forward that nobody can recognize right away. And says, wait, hold on a second. I, I had a relationship with this man. Well, it's going to get even stranger because Lynn does You're arrive stranger. at the wake after the services. Okay. And when she arrives there, she is turned away. 
by Ray's brother-in-law. So Ray's brother-in-law basically kind of gives her the, the, the short of it would be, you're not welcome here. We don't really care much about your relationship. Um, it would probably be best if you weren't present, if you weren't in attendance here. Now, looking back, nobody was to know then that his case would go unsolved for now 30 years. It would have been really interesting to see what the family and Ray's closest friends could have learned from this woman had she been allowed to stay and speak with the family and bring them up to speed on her and Ray's relationship. But that didn't happen, right? And it's kind of a natural thing. You can understand it. We have relatives here who are very much at a loss, very much in mourning. They're probably angry as well. This is not just a a death in the family. This is a murder. And you have all of these emotions, this roller coaster of emotions, and all of a sudden you're finding out during the services, well, he was involved in a relationship. He was involved in a relationship so much so that they were engaged, and he's recently divorced. Now I'm angry about this thing too. Did you did you split up their marriage? And so you can see why Lynn would have been turned away back in 1992. All these emotions are very fresh in this story, in this situation at that time. Hindsight's 2020. You really wish it she would have been allowed to stay and maybe bring them up to speed as to what was going on in Ray's personal life and in his business life too, because she works with him Yeah, and we still don't know why in fact Ray was killed to make it even stranger. I'm in a glass case of emotions. It's been reported and I've been told by multiple people that Lynn placed an envelope And it's been reported in the papers that there was a letter in the envelope, although that's never been officially confirmed by police, that she placed an envelope in Ray's casket before he was buried. Uh, So many strange little details. It's very common for people to place things in the casket with their loved one. And again, it's reported that she placed an envelope in there. It's been said that there was a letter inside. Again, that's never been confirmed. The other tricky thing, too, is... I spoke with Brian, we spoke with Brian, and we spoke with Phil Trexler. Phil was present at the funeral as well, and neither of them could confirm seeing Lynn actually place this envelope in his casket. But we do know that an envelope existed and it was found in his casket. And we know this because on April 14th, 1992, one month and one day after Raymond Timbrook was killed, His body was exhumed from the Riverside Cemetery in Painesville, Ohio. This for law enforcement to retrieve from the coffin a letter written by his, quote, fiance and hopes it would reveal a clue in the homicide case. Again, Kirtland Hills PD, all they've ever said and the Lake County prosecutor, all they've ever said in this regard is that, yes, an envelope was retrieved. They've not confirmed that it was a letter inside other than to say that it was a piece of information, a piece of possible evidence in Raymond Timbrook's case. Well, nobody that we spoke to was able to see what the contents of that letter was. The contents of the envelope. Yes, Again, like we can say letter all we want, but only the people that opened up the envelope know if there was in fact a a letter in there. Right. I mean, somebody could have placed a trinket in there or a memorial card or, or, you know, any number of things could be inside that envelope. So I think we, I, where it's always been referred to in the papers as a letter, that's fine. And it, it very likely is a letter in there. Without having viewed that or knowing someone that has viewed that, I don't know that we want to call it call it a letter. Well, let's continue to dive into the details of the timeline. One thing that's a little funny in this Raymond Timbrook case here to me, Captain, is this murder, this case did generate a lot of newspaper articles and generate a lot of news in 1992, 93, and a little bit in 94. But when you go back and you look 
at those articles and at those reports, and a lot of them, Raymond Timbrook, his title almost seems to be made up by, you know, the news, the news people, or they're at least not exactly certain what his title was at CT Consultants. He's been named in these articles as everything from a, a partner, an executive, a vice president, an engineer, a surveyor. To me, what I was able to confirm with a lot of these people is that that most of those titles would, in fact, be true. So we don't know exactly what the title was that he held in 1992 at CT Consultants, but you can apply all of those to his job description and what CT Consultants thought of Raymond Timbrook. So basically what you're getting is whatever's going on at CT Consultants while he was working there, he would either have known about it or been involved in it. When you have that many titles that that come with your name or your job duties for your business. He was a significant figure at CTE. Exactly. And I think the one that you can underline that, that is echoed most throughout those different news articles is executive. So he's high up at the company. He's been there for a long time. Now, there was one Associated Press article in particular from June 6, 1992. So now we are three months roughly after his murder. And this is an article where they are talking to CT consultants and asking them about Raymond Timbrook's murder. And the short of it, Captain, is that Frank Frederico is the president of CT consultants in 1992. And he says in this article that he urged his 200 employees to cooperate in any way with the ongoing investigation, but then goes on to say that two CT consultant employees are reluctant to cooperate with police. Frank Frederico says in the article that he cannot explain the reluctancy. He says he issued a corporate memo in March of 92, the same month as the killing to his employees to help in the case. But the two employees lawyered up right away and they weren't cooperating. They weren't speaking to police. Of course, their lawyers would speak with police. And these two were not speaking with the media either. Now, I want to fast forward all these years later. And one thing that we would learn throughout the years, and one thing that I am now calling into question, is the authenticity of Frank Frederico's statements to the media at that time in the summer of 1992. We do know for a fact that two of the CT consultants employees did in fact lawyer up and did not cooperate with the investigation. Those two employees were Lynn Egensberger, who was the fiance of Raymond Timbrook. And the other employee was George Smerigen, who was the individual that was listed as being the person that Raymond Timbrook was to meet out at hunting Hills on that Friday when he was killed. So those two lawyer up and they're not cooperating with the investigation. However, I've seen it. I've seen evidence of such that while Frank Frederico might be telling the media, I've issued a memo to all of my employees to cooperate and to assist in this investigation. One thing I know to be fact is that that might be what he's telling the public, but what was going on behind closed doors is that he told the employees not to speak to the media. In defense of Frank, I can understand not wanting my employees to speak to the media in regard to an ongoing murder investigation. I can understand if, in fact, he did say don't speak to media, but do speak to the police. Right. I'm just presenting and putting forward the fact that he's saying one thing in the papers and a slightly different thing behind closed doors, which is a little concerning to me when we have a case that is still unsolved all of these years later. Well, and like we said from the get-go, the first thing you want to do is who was Tim Brooks talking to that night? What was the meeting about? What was the context of that meeting? Rule that person in or out as far as suspect lists. But then... 
from that next divide, I would say as an investigator, you're going to go to the, your inner circle to your outer circle. These two people that lawyered up and that are not talking are the, the two people that you probably want to question first. So much more to get to. Join us back here in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't live. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.